The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Friday, September 8th, 2017. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. You perhaps have heard about the interview that Steve Bannon is giving to 60 Minutes. CBS has uh, put out some of that already. Here's an excerpt getting a lot of attention. The Catholic Church has been terrible about this. Okay, yeah. the, the bishops have been terrible about this. By the way, you know why? You know why? Because unable to really to, 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 to come to grips with the problems in the church, they need illegal aliens. They need illegal aliens to fill the churches. That's, it's obvious on the face of it. That's what, that's what the entire Catholic bishops condemning. They have an economic interest. They have an economic interest in unlimited immigration, unlimited illegal immigration. As much as Boy, I that's a Cardinal, tough thing to say about your church. As much as I respect Cardinal Dolan and the bishops on doctrine, this is not doctrine. This is not doctrine at all. I, I totally respect the Pope, and I totally respect the Catholic bishops and cardinals on doctrine. This is not about doctrine. This is about the sovereignty of a nation. And in that regard, they're just another guy with an opinion. And now we have on this show, for the first time, a just exclusive it is a response from, yes, the pontiff himself, the Pope. I like to go on first reference with pontiff and then second reference with Pope. It's kind of the opposite of most people do it. So Pope Francis just recently released a statement. I will translate from the Italian or possibly the Spanish and the Latin. He and I are both equally conversant in most Romance languages. Let us hear now that statement. Buonasera. Hello. I, the Pope, recently heard the words spoken by former White House advisor Steve Bannon. Like me, he is a child of God, a man of the cloth, or many cloths, given his uh, penchant for wearing many, many garments, vestments. We, as Catholics, we know the word of law must be heard above all, but we also recognize that we are all but vessels of Christ's love. Christ's sacrifice and compassion extends to all of God's children from the powerless to the powerful, or the recently slightly more powerful, but still pretty powerful, what with the website of crazy meme people and all. This, of course, is according to cataclysm. Oh, sorry, it's according to Politico. By listening to Christ's love and message and compassion, by reading his words, the words he has spoken, we can understand how to live righteous lives here on earth. Which is why I can announce... Uh, that Steve Bannon nailed it. He was totally right. DACA sucks. I just got back from Colombia. Stands full of thousands of people. All illegals. You've got to think, they were all illegals. Some of them, I assume, were good people. But illegals. You know, it was Jesus who said, this is in Mark 10, 14, Let the little children come to me and do not hinder them. For the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly, I tell you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it 
and he took the children in his arms and placed his hands on them and he blessed them. But he also did extensive background checks. The Bible does not say that, but theologians believe this. And then after the background checks, he filed Form I-821D, Consideration of Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals, and Form I-765, Application for a Work Permit, and Form I-765WS, Worksheet Explaining Your Economic Need to Work in Christ's Love. Do you know for years the church thought and taught that the unbaptized babies were lost to limbo, limbo, neither heaven nor the full fury of hell. It was like not North America or South America. Limbo was a Central America. And then the babies would stay in the Central America until we sort this whole thing out. Steve Bannon, he taught me this. I remember when I was a young priest and I first donned the collar. It did not occur to me I could have done two or three collars. Steve Bannon also taught me this. Steve Bannon channels and honors the unicity and insuperability of the mediation of Christ, the sacramentality of the church, and is perhaps on his way to sainthood. Oh yes, this is true. You need two miracles to be a saint, one for beatification, and we already know he can suck his own dick. Cardinal Scaramucci tells me so. Oh, I'm sorry. Was this confessional supposed to be off the record? Uh, sorry, he never said this. And thank you, Pontiff. On the show today, another just exclusive in the spiel. We hear from the president of Equifax, who's emphasizing that it's not about projecting blame because it wasn't about protecting credit. But first, Rabbit. It's the new autobiography of the comedian Ms. Pat, named for her childhood nickname, The book is almost entirely the story of childhood, and hers was a childhood unlike, I I would think, anyone else's, in that it included more tumult, trauma, and challenges than you or I or a hundred other adults have ever experienced. Miss Pat is up next. The comedian named Ms. Pat, M.S. dot Ms. Pat, is brash, bold, and honest. So honest. Well, my mother wasn't the type of parent that did a lot of whooping because she was a very small lady and she had five kids that was a lot bigger than her. So my mama walked around every day, y'all, with a 22 pistol and used to threaten the hell out of us. <laughs> One day I forgot to wash dishes. She busted my room like a sniper. Papa, bitches, didn't I tell y'all to wash them dishes? I'm thinking like, we poor as hell. Where she keep getting all these bullets from? <laughs> you shouldn't have more bullets than you do food. But the shit that used to piss me off the most about my mom, y'all, is every day when I came home from school, she would take me into her bedroom and make me sit in a chair and just throw a fucking newspaper in my lap and force me to read her her horoscope. (laughs) Because she couldn't read. But it used to piss me off because I couldn't read either. So I would make up shit. Sagittarius, stop shooting at your kids. (laughs) 
But I'm not sure that audiences knew just how honest she was being. In what seems like fantastical setups for very funny punchlines, it turns out from reading her new autobiography called Rabbit, these aren't made up. These are actual stories from an actual life. If it didn't end up with Ms. Pat being a very successful comedian, you would still say that is one of the most compelling accounts of anyone growing up and persevering that I've ever read. Rabbit's the name of the book. Ms. Pat is here. Thanks for joining me. Thank you for having me. So when you play to crowds, I would expect that if not the number one, a number one statement uh, made to you by people who hadn't known you before afterwards would be, did that really happen? Do people come up to you and say that a lot? All the time. The main, they ask me that every night. Are you really missing a nipple? Did he really shoot you in the head? Did you really have crabs gonna run fleas? <laughs> because it seems like for a lot of comedians, those are the punchlines, but for you, they're the setups. And I even think that it's a little disorienting to people. Like when you talk about your mom waving around a 22, that's to get to the joke about how much do bullets cost. But it seems like that's the joke to most, you know, normal middle class audiences who you're playing to. You know, I get that all the time. Did your mama really shoot in the house? She really used to shoot in the house. Now, yeah. if you was visiting, it probably scared you, but we were so used to it. Well, that's the amazing thing. I mean, it's not as if if you consume comedy or rap or lots of art, you don't you aren't exposed to stories, people who became successful artists who in their past were drug dealers or committed crimes or whatever. But I don't think anyone to the extent that you were. I mean, I don't care how much Jay-Z brags about how good a drug dealer he was. He didn't have two kids by the time he was 15, and he probably wasn't moving as much product as you were. Well, it's <laughs> I probably could have did other things, but I chose selling drugs. I mean, it was the quickest thing. I'm 15 with two kids. And I mean, honestly, who would really hire a 15 year old with two kids? The book opens with a chapter of you talking about your grandfather. And he ran, um, I guess, an illegal moonshine business or a, the, the liquor house. And that seemed to impress upon you that once you have good money coming in, no matter the source, it's better than not having any money coming in, even if you're not breaking the law. I mean, you know, when, when the way I came up, nobody had a job. So all we saw was hustling. We didn't see people with nine to five. My my granddaddy customers probably had jobs, but everybody in my family, my uncle stole, my mom and them was welfare queens, and my granddaddy was the bootleg man. That's all we was taught as kids. And to this day, we all hustle. I think many people talk about, you know, growing up poor, growing up in the hood. I don't know if anyone grew up like you did. We made reference to your mom being an alcoholic and carrying a twenty two. It seemed like she had a lot of mental illness. She died very young. Are there one or two anecdotes that you tell to audiences that really get across what kind of mom she was? You know, (laughs) when you grow up with a mom like that, you don't know that that's a bad mom until you go out into the real world. I mean, I watched a lot of Leave it to Beaver and a lot of stuff that, you know, we accepted as a kid and thought was okay, and I didn't see on Leave it to Beaver. But the world told me how horrible my mama was. You don't know that when you're in that situation. Even when I was writing the book, one of the things the uh, the co-writer said, she was like, you protect the people who hurt you the most, which was my mom. I was like, don't write that about her. People going to think she was bad. She had to set me down and say she was bad. But in your comedy, before you even wrote the book and before your uh, your co-author there, Janine Amber, really pointed out 
uh, she, she was a terrible mom. There were jokes in your comedy, and we played a couple about how she was, and I listed the things, how she would wave and shoot a twenty-two. That didn't say bad to you? That was quirky? No. I mean, she did it all the time, dude. It was like, oh, mama shooting guns. She done bought her some bullets. She would, see, it was normal. It was normal. She shot her gun. We was like, okay, she pissed off. She must want wants to pull her looker, or she wants some wine. Papa, I'll bring your ass in here. Okay, we know to get up to go in there. It's only horrible if you coming in on the outside saying, hey, everybody mama don't shoot at them. <laughs> so I want to ask you about comedy because as I'm reading the book, I'm, I'm like 200 pages in and it strikes me that any other biography of a comedian I've ever read, which normally they have, and I was always obsessed with comedy or, or this was the first time I did stand up or I love to watch on the Merv Griffin show. None of that was in the book. I don't think, you know, we just wanted to tell the myth. We just wanted to tell Rabbit's story. You know, Rabbit is, is done turned into Miss Pat now. But, you know, that's where I get all the jokes from, from when I was Rabbit. I wanted people to focus more on Rabbit than Miss Pat. But when you talk to other comedians, when, when you hang out at whatever venue and you're just telling stories about your childhood, it must come up. You must notice that all the rest of them. The idea of being a comedian or talking about comedy as being part of their life was much more present in their lives for a long part of their lives than it was for you. Yeah, I just didn't pick up comedy like most comedians. They just say, hey, I don't want to work anymore. I'm going to go try to be in a comic because I can stay up all night and get drunk. That mess just fell in my lap. Honestly, I was not looking for a job. The caseworker was like, you are funny. And I, I was there running schemes because when you come from the hood, you are taught how to hustle. And one of the things is if you got a white caseworker, the more you can make her feel sorry for you, the more items you're going to get free. But just so happened I got a black caseworker and them lines did not work. Boy, did she laugh at me. <laughs> and she was like, you missing your blessing. And I was like, I don't want a job. I just want to watch the young and the restless. And this lady never gave up. She just kept pressuring me. You're funny. You should really you should really give it a try. When you first broke in, you played what they call the Chitlin circuit. And, and the vibe of those rooms was really demanding and a lot different. Do you think that that formed you into the comedian you are today? That helped. I tell you, because. Black people don't play. They don't buy their Hennessy and chicken to come here. Here you practice. <laughs> they don't play. <laughs> a black audience is very hard. I tell you, I was funny, but really didn't know what I was doing as a storyteller until I moved to Indianapolis. The mainstream audience allowed me to grow because white people are more patient. I mean, honestly, they would just sit there and be like, bless your heart, you try. Black people are like, kill yourself and your kids and what's your address? Because I'm going to kill everybody for you, for you trying to be a comedian tonight. Yes, I understand that it was good that you got your start in that way, trial by fire. But it, it seems uh, almost harder and less rewarding to do comedy in that style where everything has to just be a killer punchline or killer punchline. Or eventually, can you kind of, if you hit them hard two or three times in the beginning, can you work some space to to tell a story or that's just not allowed on the chitlin circuit no it's, it allowed i think is that the comics you just know the black audience so you're scared you want to keep their attention but now i don't perform like that i just go do what i do in front of anybody you either listen or you don't but when you first come out you come out swinging like that in those black rooms old black rooms are no joke you know i had a thing where this guy hit they used to give the audience nerf balls and the guy hit me in my forehead with a nerf ball 
the first joke. He didn't even give me time to get it out. <laughs> and I almost lost my mind. I was like, y'all, let's rob this clown. You mentioned that you don't care. Is it that or is it that now that you're really good, you dictate the energy instead of letting the crowd dictate the energy? Yes. And I tell young comics all the time, I said, don't let them tell you what to do. You you do what you want to do. I mean, I can control it now. I can take the crowd. I can make them cry or I can make them bust out laughing. It's just however I want to tell my stories. And that's just over time. I'm 15 years in. And you got to get to that point where you don't give a crap. Have you ever done that? Have you ever just said, all right, I'm going to toss away some of the laughs and really go for the emotion, get someone crying? Oh, I do that at the end of my show. I tell a story about... um. Uh, when our pre- our current president wanted to take away free lunch and I tell people, I said, don't be so quick to judge because you're looking at me tonight. I live in a 6,000 square foot home. I have health care. I can close my door and act like people like me don't exist. And I tell this story about missing free breakfast and damn near be my friend to death with a, one of those green trays because she threw away my breakfast. I waited 72 hours for and the lunch lady came out. I was like, you ain't got to fight over no sauce and biscuit. I was like, I don't. And she took me to the cafeteria and I thought I had died and went to sauce and biscuits heaven. And she let me sit back there and ate myself to death and take sauce and biscuits home and everything. And, you know, you, I put laughter in it, but I want people to open their mind. Don't be so quick to judge because everybody don't start off with the same foundation. How'd you decide to end on that more serious story slash joke? Let me tell you, it was the day he was going to sign that bill and I woke up to it. I seen it on CNN and I started crying. I had never told that story really on stage about the free lunch. And that's when I said, that's going to be my closer to make people realize. No, it was a guy on Twitter. He said, show me a kid that's hungry. And I sent him a picture of me. I said, this kid used to always be hungry. And I said, I'm going to tell that story. And it's a moving story. Uh, it makes educators cry all the time. But it's also funny in now. You know, the fight is funny. But I want people to realize, you know, you, 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 you got to open your mind. Everybody, we, we don't all start the same. I wish, but we don't. Did writing the book and maybe being pushed by your co-author, Janine, who, as I read about, what she did, the fact checking and going back and making sure these good stories that no one would have questioned if you just put in there as a, in, in an autobiography of a comic, but she really nailed them down. Being pushed by her towards honesty, did that affect your comedy at all? Did you get more honest or differently honest in your comedy? I got even more honest because as she started to talk to the people from my past, I started to pick up more material. Like they would tell me stuff that I, I forgot. Like, well, when I tried to reach out to Derek, my kid, my first kid's father, he just told, you know, he told a story to my son. I don't really talk to him about how I didn't make the book, but how I used to be so ghetto. I would walk in the store and snatch the hair out of my head and say, I want some more of this hair right here, which is hilarious to me. (laughs) And I had forgot I used to do that. So I, I ended up picking up more material. Just just dealing with Janine, a, a black lady who's from Canada, who's been here since 92, just dealing with her who speak correct English, calling my people in the hood. And they was like, I don't talk to white people. And I'm like, no, 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 she's black. And I had to tell her, stop saying beg your pardon. They don't you scare black people when you say beg your pardon. <laughs> That's from that side of the world. So just that stuff I got a bit out of. You know, there are people in the book. I don't know if they're alive or dead who uh, when you were a child, you were sexually assaulted by an adult. And there, there are other instances like that where as the reader, you kind of do wonder, well, has this guy ever has you know, any follow up? Have Has he ever been charged or accused or, you know, what happened to him? Has he been allowed to get away with it? There are a few people like that. What What's the answer to that question? 
Well, the first one is my um, my mom's boyfriend. He's dead. And we never dis- I never told my mama because I never thought she cared. And, you know, a lot of time when people sexually assault you, they always make it seem like it's your fault or you're doing it for a good reason. Mine's was, you know, well, if you tell your mama, y'all ain't y'all going to get evicted or y'all ain't going to be able to eat. And that's a story that I never shared. My husband didn't even know that story. I actually, when I decided to tell, I just picked up the phone and called my sister and was like, you remember what Mr. John did to us? And she said, yeah. And I said, okay, Janine, I'm ready to tell the story. But it's, I thought I was going to die with it. Uh, the other one is my kid's father. You know, I was 12 when I met him, got pregnant at 13. He was like 20 or 21, and he was married. And um, he took me through a lot. You know, he shot me, physically, mentally abused me. I mean, anything he could do, I allowed it. And I thought it was because my mama told me something. She said, if a man don't hit you, he don't love you. So I thought every time he hit me in my eye or stomped me, that was a form of love. So now that I've written this book, my kid's father have an issue. He wants to say he didn't know I was that young. I said, okay, I give it to you on the first birth certificate you signed. I was 14. But what about the kid birth certificate you signed that was 15? Then I go on to say, dude, you was picking me up from an elementary school. What you thought I was a teacher? He signed, I mean, that's it. He signed both birth certificates. Signing yeah. birth certificates is a thing he does. He, he signed, oh, he got like 22 kids. Yeah. <laughs> You're right. Signing birth certificate is a thing he do. <laughs> he might be my dad for all I know. I, I have no idea. You got to be able to suck your thumb till you're 52. To that, be, that's another thing be. he did, yeah. So even though you changed his name, that was the identifying characteristic that uh, he didn't like that you put in the book, that he still sucks his thumb? Uh, he can't read, so he didn't read the book. Mm-hmm. He just, he just run around telling people he gonna sue me. I was like, dude, read the book, first of all. Matter of fact, I did an audible and I read it the best I could, just so you can hear it for yourself. <laughs> so, you know, and I tell him, you know, I'm gonna sue you. I say, please sue me, because you've been behind on your child support. All they're gonna do is turn around and give it back to me. Yeah. And what, so what's your husband think of all the revelations and the things he didn't know about from the book? You know, my husband, I've been with my husband since 92. And he's never said anything bad about my kid's father. He's always said, hey, that's their dad. Don't ever let them let them create this own image of their daddy. Don't ever put this stuff in their head. But after he read this book, he said, F him. But he was really blown away. And he's a big fan of this book. I mean, it's 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 a wonderful book. And uh, your comedy is great. And it was great talking to you. Patricia Williams, author of Rabbit, the autobiography of Ms. Pat. Thanks so much. Thank you for having me. And now the spiel. You probably heard the news about Equifax. If not, here I'll remind you. And afterwards, another just exclusive. The Equifax says, quote, criminals exploited a U.S. website application and the vulnerability of that website application, and they gained access to certain files. So it is a very large data breach, 143 million U.S. consumers at Equifax. Hello, I'm Rick Smith, president and CEO of Equifax. As you have no doubt heard, our internal systems were breached resulting in the divulging of millions of customer-sensitive financial records. We take this issue very seriously, and we want to speak directly to our millions of customers who chose us, or in most cases, 
who had us forced upon them as an impenetrable shadow monitoring service that they never asked for. We want to quickly get back to our core business, serving and safeguarding the credit of our members in the only way we know how as an unaccountable cabal with little oversight. We've also seen the statements of elected officials, such as Senator Elizabeth Warren, who tweeted, quote, It's outrageous that Equifax, a company whose one job is to collect consumer information, failed to safeguard data for 143 million Americans. We appreciate the comments of the Democratic senator from Massachusetts, FICO Score 720, and assure her we are thoroughly addressing the matter, just as she should perhaps address her variable rate mortgage, which I see could be impacted by a declining credit rating. Just pulling up the file here. Seems to be a couple late payments on a Diners Club card. There's a Warren Seymour of Elizabeth, New Jersey, with a lien against him. If that's not you, Senator Warren, you're free to send in a formal letter via certified mail. We will get to that as soon as, you know, this whole 150 million people with identity theft thing gets all cleared up. To that end, I want to assure all our customers that we are taking steps to allow you to find out if you have been personally subjected to a data breach. You just need to sign a few simple statements on our website. This website can be accessed through any public Wi-Fi network, such as Boingo. I love Boingo. Starbucks has some. Uh, you can use a public Wi-Fi terminal not currently being used by a homeless man as a pied a terre. Other connection spots include the Ecuadorian Embassy in London, or just look for any network titled GRU Cozy Bear. Once there, you will have to confirm to us who you are, and we ask that your request for statement of hacking victimhood includes a self-addressed stamped envelope, your mother's maiden name, a blood sample, and a stool sample. Please send all of that info to us here at Equifax, and we will get back to you in a timely manner. Except the stool sample. You can send that to Senator Elizabeth Warren. As far as the members of the Equifax family who sold Equifax stock in advance of the release of this news, which we have known about since July, does this comport with the Equifax mission, with our mission statements, with our values? Well, before you answer, consider this. As officers in a company dedicated to credit monitoring, these gentlemen realize the effect that a huge stock loss can have. It could lead to a missed payment or even a loan default. And what kind of example would that be setting if Vice President John Gamble or board member Rodolfo Plotter were to suffer a credit decline? If the leaders of Equifax do not show prudence in these areas, how can we ask the same of you, our valued customers? And by customers, we of course mean citizens who we regularly, if opaquely, deny housing, transportation, and employment to. We at Equifax vow this will never happen again. That is why we're going to a system of two-factor authentication. Here's how it will work. For instance, one factor may be the last four digits of your social security number, which in the case of Elizabeth Warren is 3828. And the second factor may be, let us say, the first five digits of your social security number. Elizabeth Warren's is 06271. I thank you for your time in addressing these matters. And let me leave you with our promise of fortitude, our pledge of vigilance, and also Elizabeth Warren's mother's maiden name. It is Burton, B-U-R-T-O-N. And her fight goes down to 701. And that's it for today's show. Just producer Dan Schrader, FICO score in the mid-700s, which seems good. But when you consider the fact that he had an SAT math score in the high 700s, I got to say the guy's underperforming a little bit. Just producer Mary Wilson gives credit where credit is due, but she does so warily. 
with a teaser rate APR that reverts to 29% after one missed payment. Steve Lichtai, executive producer of Slate Podcasts, has an advanced credit monitoring program in place. He monitors these credits from time to time, and if I don't say anything too bad about them, we're all good. The gist. We once had our identity stolen by hackers who opened up a line of credit in our name, dutifully paid off the balance each month, kept plenty of cash on reserve, and never dipped below the minimum for the checking account. But you know what? The checkbook had a Snoopy and balloons on it, so we feel a little violated. Oomperoo, depperoo, dooperoo, and thanks for listening.